Well, good morning, and would you join me in opening up a Bible to Luke chapter 19. As the children's video helpfully explained, reminded us, today is Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week. Palm Sunday, the name given to that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, which was prophesied hundreds of years prior. The crowds welcomed him by laying palms on the ground and, again, beginning what would turn out to be the most important peak, important week in all of history. And in Luke's gospel, uh, in chapter 19, I want to spend some time in looking at the passage just before the triumphal entry. Because Jesus does something unexpected there that is in the mind of the crowds and his disciples as he does head into Jerusalem. And just before, he arrives in this town called Jericho. It's the final town on the road to Jerusalem that is on the edge of the wilderness before you start a 25-kilometer uh, ascent up to the elevated city of Jerusalem. And the most unexpected thing that Jesus does in this town is not a major miracle, it's not a dramatic healing of a disease, but rather, he stays with and eats at the home of a notorious sinner. Our Easter sermon series this year is called Meals with Jesus. And we're just taking a few weeks to spotlight this fact that walls come down when people eat together. Jesus broke down cultural walls and relational walls when he ate within the same physical walls of people's homes. And isn't it interesting for how much has changed over the last 2,000 years, right? If we were to talk about what are the differences between 21st century and the first century, we'd be here all day, right? Just going through all that is different. I mean, let alone 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. And yet, with that being true, the power, joy, and at times pain that's associated with something as simple as eating together is really not all that different, both individually and as a society. And that I would venture to say that if you had to list, think back on your life, list some of the most joyful as well as some of the most painful memories you have, it happened at or adjacent to a meal. Consider in traditional practice that after both weddings and funerals, people eat together. After weddings, it's called a reception. After funerals, it's called a repast. But both times, it's a shared meal, whether in celebration or in sorrow. People eat together. Eating together is a major aspect of growing in a friendship with somebody or in a dating relationship, an eventual engagement and marriage. And at the same time, eating alone can be a major source of pain with painful memories. I recall just a couple months ago, we were in a staff meeting and we were discussing a book uh, that we as a staff were reading together. And two members of our staff shared very vivid memories of middle school when they were new to a new junior high and had to eat alone in a crowded cafeteria. Very vivid in their minds. 
So for as technologically advanced we are and as progressive and self-righteous we might think we are in modern generations compared to past generations, no technology can remove the reality of emotional pain that we experience and sticks with us. So it's individual, but I think it's also, again, uh, cultural. It's true for a society that for all that has changed, the intimacy and prejudice that revolves around eating together is in many ways the same. You have this story in the book of Galatians where the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Galatia, and he calls out in that letter the Apostle Peter, which is a big deal, right? Early church, these are the two biggest names, if not the biggest names in the early church, Paul and Peter, and Paul is publicly condemning Peter to the church at Galatia. Why? Do you remember why? Listen, I'll read a short passage from Galatians. When Cephas, which was another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter knew that the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jews, were his fellow brothers in Christ, unified by the blood of the Lamb. And yet, there was something about eating together that was too much. For some of the Jews. And he was embarrassed by it. And so he pulled back. And then we know, relatively speaking, it was not that long ago that restaurants in our very nation were segregated by skin color. Either in sections of a restaurant or sometimes in all the entire restaurant. And it was not until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that made it illegal for restaurants to segregate by skin color, and it would take many years for most restaurants to even agree to comply to that. And I think if you were to go down the list of restaurant owners throughout our country who segregated their seating, many, if not most of them, would have professed to be Christians, who might affirm that like them, that people of a different skin color of theirs would also be Christians by the unified blood blood of the Lamb, but just like Peter, eating together was just a step too far for some. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Something about eating together, things happen. Well, with that said, let's go. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
I thought about singing the popular children's song associated with this passage for about 13 seconds, but I decided to spare us all. This is a relatively familiar and straightforward story, even though Luke is the only one of the gospel writers to include it. And we don't know how long Jesus would stay at Zacchaeus' house. Was this just lunch and then on to Jerusalem? Was this a single meal? Or was he there for an entire day? Did Jesus stay overnight? Did he stay for three days? We, we don't know. But we do know that right after this, he would tell a parable at the meal and then head into Jerusalem. So here's how I want to approach this passage of this morning. You know what I am really intrigued by in this passage? What happened between verses 7 and verse 8? Look back down. Jesus tells Zacchaeus he's coming to his house, and, and the crowd grumbles that Jesus would even consider doing this. That's the end of verse 7. And then, verse 8, Zacchaeus stands up and shows evidence of his salvation. So what happened between verse 7 and verse 8? I believe the text gives us good insight into the very fact that Jesus, at the least, at the very least, Jesus did four things. I'm going to list them, and then we're going to go through them one by one. Number one, Jesus addressed the person. And we'll explain what that means. Number two, Jesus called out sin. Number three, Jesus shared the good news of salvation. And then number four, Jesus taught about discipleship. I think at the very least, these four things happen between verse 7 and verse 8. And so before we go through them one by one, friend, if you are here this morning or watching online and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you were to ask the question, if I had a meal with Jesus, what can I expect? What would we talk about? I think you'd talk about these four things. And likewise, brothers and sisters in Christ who are here this morning or watching, who we are collectively seeking to be salt and light in this world, if you have a literal or figurative meal or many meals with a non-believer, you might ask your question, what should I address with people who are not saved? How should I approach people who do not believe in Christ? These four things provide a good pattern for us all to consider. Would you consider these four things as you figuratively and literally eat with others? So let's go through them one by one, starting with number one. Jesus addressed the person. So Zacchaeus was well known throughout Jericho, but not in a good way, because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And not only was he a tax collector, but he was, in fact, the chief tax collector. Now, we're not explicitly told that Zacchaeus was Jewish, but it is safe to infer that because Zacchaeus was a Jewish name and that they're in the region of Jericho, which is just outside of Jerusalem and was a predominantly Jewish area, that Zacchaeus was, in fact, Jewish, which would make him even more hated by his people because now the Jews saw him as a traitor to his very own. Tax collectors, they worked for Rome. And he was a first century government worker. He was an official who was in charge of, as is obvious, collecting taxes from the Jews. And it was a profession that was rife with corruption, where they would often extort and manipulate people for money 
particularly the poor, keep some for themselves and then give the rest to Rome in order to keep Rome happy and to fund their policies, which also would oppress the Jewish people. And all the while, they're doing this while their own people get oppressed and he is getting enriched in the process. And Zacchaeus, being a chief tax collector, I think means that he was just more rich and more corrupt than the rest. That's how you climb the ladder. And so he was the object of scorn. And also, Luke does not tell us the context of why Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. In that verse, he was wanting to see Jesus, but we're not told why. Perhaps he saw an opportunity with Jesus being in town now, this person who he's heard about, and now all these people are flocking around him. Maybe he sees this as an opportunity to leverage his position and to enrich himself all the more. Jesus is a business opportunity. That's possible because that is a mentality that many, if not most people, seem to have. Always thinking about, what is in it for me? How can I capitalize off this? And just being completely consumed, self-centered, where the whole world is just seen through the lens of me, and how does this benefit me? Is that what Zacchaeus is doing here? Is that his initial mindset? It's possible. I actually don't think so. Because verse 3, when it says he was seeking to see Jesus, I think something was stirring in him based upon the stories he had heard to the point where, because of his short height, kind of a random vivid detail that Luke gives us, Zacchaeus was a small man. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. All right? But because of his short height, what did he have to do? He had to run ahead and climb a tree. That's something children do. Children climb trees. Not rich, self-righteous tax collectors But Zacchaeus didn't care. He wanted to see him. And then Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, come on down. I must stay at your house. And Luke says that Zacchaeus received him joyfully, joyfully. Now, we have to admit, could this joy still be self-centered? Now Jesus is coming to my house. Like This is huge for me. I'm going to benefit off of this. I'm going to get even richer off of this. I'll take advantage. Again, maybe, but here's the undeniable point for us. Jesus refused to look at Zacchaeus the way the crowds did. He refused to write him off. To the crowds, this man was known by his label, a rich chief tax collector. That was the identity they placed on him, and they hated him for it. But Jesus addressed the person, not the label. To Jesus, he was Zacchaeus, a man made in the image of God, who was lost, and yet someone whom God loved, someone whom God wanted to pursue, someone whom God wanted to save. And I can't help but see how important this is for us today in the church. To follow the model of Christ as opposed to the model of the crowd. The question is, how do you see people? Do you see people by their label that culture imposes on them or that we impose upon them? Or do we see them as image bearers? Because you see, the crowd could not see past the label they already put on him. And therefore, they could not imagine sharing a table with him. Did you get that? Let me say it again. The crowd could not see past the label they already put on him. And therefore could not imagine sharing a table 
with him. But Jesus calls him by name. Jesus goes to his home. Jesus shares his table. I wonder, before Jesus, when was the last time someone went into Zacchaeus' home? When was the last time someone expressed a desire to eat with him? How often did Zacchaeus eat alone? But we live in a society today where people are so quick to label others without actually taking the time to get to know them. And I find myself being guilty of this myself, where we we know something about their past, and we never desire to associate with them because of it. Or we we hear bits and pieces of their worldview, or we see one or two social media posts of theirs, and we think, we got that person pegged. We have them figured out. And the labels today are as strong as ever. You can go across the board, man. Let's get uncomfortable, right? You're rich and you're poor. That's the label. And I'm going to treat you based upon how I see you as being rich or poor. Or you're a racist. Or you're a white supremacist. Or you're a socialist. Or you're a Marxist. Man, we are full of labels in our society. And whenever we look at people, we just see the label. And if I'm honest, the reason I often slap a label on somebody that I disagree with More often than not, that is to justify my own non-loving, non-charitable thoughts and actions towards them. I can think this way about them because they are fill in the blank. Brothers and sisters, this is dangerous for everyone, but it is the death knell of a church if Christians do it to one another. It is not just unhelpful, It's sinful. It's not just dangerous, it's slanderous to see a brother or sister in Christ and apply a culturally applied label before we see them and treat them as a fellow brother and sister in Christ. And so this is an opportunity just in the daily acts of engaging with people and who we eat with, so to speak, again, literally or figuratively, That rather than label one another, we have the opportunity to lovingly engage with one another. You know what's key to engaging with another? Asking questions. Church, we need to rediscover the art of asking good questions. To leverage the sameness we have with others to discuss our differences. To start a conversation with, hey, um, can you help me understand where you're coming from when you say this? Can you help me understand where you're coming from when you posted that? What would happen if we as Christians were known for asking good questions instead of making sharp judgments? What would happen if we got to know people that drew um, us toward them? And did not settle for labels that drive us away from them. Church, we don't write off others, especially within the body of Christ, despite what we might think we know about them, because Jesus did not write us off despite what he did know about us. Somewhere between verse 7 and verse 8, Jesus addressed the person and not the label. That's number one. Let's keep going. Number two. Jesus called out sin. At some point, 
In that time, Jesus called out sin and did not just gloss over it. So again, he is eating at this tax collector's home and getting to know the person behind the label as a tax collector, but that did not mean he glossed over the sin of a tax collector. And and this is what's very strange about people who you might often hear today say, well, you know what? Jesus railed against the religious people and he ate and dined with sinners. As if to assume that by eating with them, he was approving of their lifestyle or at the very least just didn't care about the choices they were making. As if by eating with somebody, Jesus is implying to each their own, it's not mine to judge. More times than not, when somebody says that Jesus ate with sinners, that's the point they're trying to lead to. But to eat with someone and love someone is not to affirm and accept everything they choose to do. But it's to engage with them as image-bearing human beings and point them to the grace and love of God. And that necessarily includes talking about the reasons why the world is fallen, why the world is broken. Nobody would argue against that, but we might have conflicting views as to why that is the case. And we have the opportunity, as Jesus did, to say that, yes, while the story starts with all people being made in the image of God, the story does not say that God tells his image bearers to do whatever you want to make yourself happy. Just do you. Be true to yourself. And that's all that matters. It's not the message. Because in Genesis chapter 3, things take a horrific turn. Human sin, rebellion against God, introduced a massive distortion into the creative order. There's a professor at Wheaton College. His name is um, Vincent Baycoat. And he talks about the four relationships that get altered with sin. Four, sin and the fall and, um, introduced four distorted relationships. Number one is between God and man. There was a breach with God. Number two, between man and self. That there's, we are internally fractured in self. That's the second relationship. The third relationship was a break with the creative order. That they're no longer at peace with creation. And then number four, man against man. There's enmity with other humans. Why is sin a big deal? Because these four relationships changed. And Baycoat says that as a result of sin, the divine image is altered in a way analogous to a cracked mirror. Think about this with me. You have a cracked mirror in your hand. It's still a mirror, But it fails now to consistently or properly reflect the likeness of the object. In the same way, after the fall, we are all still image bearers. But because of sin, we can no longer consistently or properly reflect the likeness or the image of our creator. So Jesus explains to Zacchaeus that we are all broken mirrors Even though some people might look at others and be like, they got way more cracks than I do. Their mirror is way more jacked up than mine. It might not be true, but even if it is true, you're still a cracked mirror. Uh, Matt Smethurst tweeted out just this past week, he said this, quote, An immature Christian is someone who has a Ph.D. in others' sins and a junior high diploma in their own. We're so good at pointing it out in others, so poorly can recognize our own. 
And this is the consequence of sin. It not only separates us from our true self and from God and the creative order and others, but it distorts that separation to make it just seem normal. It's just the way it is, people will say. We all just need to manage it the best we can. But at this meal, Jesus talks about sin. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, a Jewish man, that he's not going to be able to rely upon his ethnic heritage for salvation. That no one is saved simply because they had the right upbringing. Right? That's what the first couple chapters of Romans is all about. Where, where Paul says that uh, first in chapter 1, that no one who has ever lived in the history of the world is without excuse. And that all people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's all of chapter 1. And in the case of the Jews, as a descendant of God's chosen people of Israel, those who are in Rome reading this, chapter 1, are probably going, yes and amen, the world is wicked. They're all jacked up. But then chapter 2, Paul turns on them and says, they are also without excuse. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you do the very same thing. And it all leads up to Romans chapter 3, where he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's that mean for us? Um, a lot of things, but let me just say this. It means that if you were raised in a solid Christian home, that is a blessing, and we ought to be thankful for that, as many of you can testify. But it guarantees nothing about our being a Christian simply because our parents were. And conversely, if you grew up in a non-Christian home, or in a home where a family uh, either did not believe in Christ or maybe professed to, but saw none of the fruit of that in the home, that that's not a curse on your life, because God's grace is not limited to those who grew up in a Christian home. Again, as many of you can testify. But somewhere between verses 7 and 8, Jesus called out sin and did not gloss over it. Leading to number three, Jesus shared the good news of salvation. Recall that there are two wrong ways to address sin to others, including and particularly non-believers. The first is to not talk about it at all. Just don't talk about sin at all out of fear of their response or, or by the, uh, maybe your fear of appearing judgmental. Don't talk about it at all. That's the first mistake. And the second is to address it without also talking about the saving grace of God and Jesus Christ that overcomes that sin. So you can either never talk about it, and that's wrong, or you can only talk about sin and tell people how sinful they are and never talk about the grace of Jesus Christ, and that's also wrong. Again, back to Vincent Baycote. He says, quote, The good news of the gospel is that through Christ, the ruptures of the fall will be healed. The good news of the gospel is that through Christ, the ruptures of the fall will be healed. If you could picture yourself sitting at the table in Zacchaeus' home as Jesus talks to him and to others, can you picture Zacchaeus being broken down about his past, the shame he must feel about mourning over his sin, the decisions he's made? And then Jesus says... That God made a way to set the fractured creative order right. From the individual to the systemic to the cosmic. That he promised 
our forefather Abraham, that he would set it right and that he would do it through Abraham's family line and that somebody would come and behold Zacchaeus, he is here. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Church, this is the answer to the question, why do we celebrate Easter every year? When this week comes around, why do we make a big deal about it? Maybe your kids ask, maybe friends ask, what's the big deal about Easter? What's the point? Here's the point. That only man should atone for his sin. And the problem is that only God could atone for sin. And so Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the God-man, is the only one in history where the could and where the should come together. So that by his death and resurrection, the lost will be found. The dead will be made alive. And that atonement is applied to us not by good works, but by faith. By repentance of sin that he discussed and believing in Jesus Christ for new life and being united with him. This is how it is applied through faith. At some point between verses 7 and 8, Jesus shared the good news of the gospel with Zacchaeus. And then last, number 4, Jesus taught about discipleship. Based upon Zacchaeus' pronouncement in verse 8, we see that Jesus must have taught about not only what it means to get saved or be saved through faith in him, but also now how to live a life as one who is saved, how to live a life as a disciple, a follower of Christ. He sought to ensure that Zacchaeus didn't think, well, now I got it. I said my prayer. Now I can continue living life as I want, and then things will work out for me in heaven. The get out of hell free card. But rather, he explains, true salvation leads to a changed life. When Christ takes the throne of our lives, when he displaces ourselves as our own gods, things change. Our motivations change. Our affections change. Our desires change. And our actions begin over time to reflect those inward changes. Church, it is impossible. It is impossible for the Holy Spirit to enter in and not be changed because of it. And just as sin not only distorts the relationship with man and God, but also our our horizontal relationships, our relationships with others, so too a life that is committed to following Christ displays reconciliation towards God and towards our fellow man. Which is why Jesus, when asked, hey, what's what's the whole, what's the most important commandment? Just Just give it to me, Jesus. What's the most important thing in a line? Jesus gives it. And he said... Here's what's most important. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Reconciliation vertically, reconciliation horizontally. It's interesting how in the two meals we've looked at in this series, last week in Luke chapter 5, we saw the redeemed woman display a love for God in anointing Jesus' feet with oil. And now in Luke 19... We see Zacchaeus' display of a love for neighbor. Again, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. In Zacchaeus, we see the transformative power of the grace of God and the collateral benefit to the world when just one man is redeemed. Right? And it ought to be true that when God saves you, when God saves you and transforms your life, that there are those beyond you and adjacent to you who are going to be blessed by the fruit of that salvation because God lifts our eyes towards him and then outward towards others. And that changes, if we're honest, it's always a little slower than we want it to be. Right? There's, a, there's kind of a misconception that the moment I get saved, the next day, everything's different. And that's true inwardly. But it's going to take time for that outward action to be reflected from motivations to desires to affections and then towards action. But when, where we become ambassadors of God's kingdom through being good stewards of that which he has given us, this is transformation that now plays itself out. And every believer has three T's. We talked about this before, right? Every believer has three T's. We all have time, talent, and treasure. And not at, at the same level, right? It's God's sovereign grace as to how much time or talent or treasure he's given us. But he has entrusted all three to us on some level to be a blessing to others. That we are stewards of those things. We don't own our time. We don't own our treasure. We don't own our talent. God gives it to us to be a blessing to others. And so Zacchaeus, who was a rich tax collector, proves to be the opposite of the rich young ruler from chapter 18, Luke. Do you remember that story? The rich young ruler said, what do I got to do to be saved? And the Lord, knowing his heart, said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. What did the rich young ruler do? It says he walked away sad because he cannot part with his money. And now Zacchaeus, a chapter later, is the opposite of the rich young ruler. It is out of the joy of his heart that God has broken the shackles of greed, gave him the eyes to see God's vision for justice, for restitution, for giving to the least of these, to restoring fourfold those whom he has defrauded. Again, we might not experience as drastic, or of, uh, drastic of a change or as fast of a change as Zacchaeus displays here, but be rest assured, in due time, outward change will be noticeable to those around us based on how we spend our time, treasure, and talent. And in Christ, Zacchaeus went from asking, how much can I get, to how much can I give? You see, joy is found in giving, not hoarding. Jesus himself says it is truly better to give than to receive. And so the New Testament cares about giving, and Jesus talks a lot about money, not just for the sake of those who will receive that money, but even more so for the giver, right? So when we at Grace Church, I know it always gets a little skeptical and a little weird when pastors talk about money. I get it. I kind of feel that sometimes when I hear it too. But if churches are being faithful, we are going to encourage generous giving, first and foremost, because it is a window into our hearts, Right? Giving is first about discipleship. It's about following Christ. And so we encourage our people to be generous and open-handed with our giving because it is good for us to give, not because God needs our gifts. Somewhere between verses 7 and 8, 
Jesus taught about true discipleship and what it means to not only believe, but to follow. And so it is amazing what Zacchaeus would have missed out on if he didn't climb that tree. If he had not received Jesus into his home, if he did not have Jesus sit at his table. Because as we see, walls come down at mealtime. I hope you see this morning that the story of Zacchaeus is impactful because your story is his story. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, it is not because you first decided to pursue Christ, but because he sought after you. Even an initial desire you felt to want to see Jesus was put there by God. That desire was put there by the Spirit. And at some point you came to find that when you saw him, he already knew you by name. Jesus loved you enough to reveal to you that while you are not defined by your sin, you can't just gloss over it either. Because sin separates. Sin creates distance between you and God, between you and others, between you and the creative order, between you and your true self. Jesus revealed that that is why he came. That is why he pursues you, because he came to seek and save the lost. And in his death on the cross, he heals what has been ruptured. He atones for sin, and we die to our old self. And in his resurrection, he is raised again and launches a new kingdom that we are raised up into as well. And by his word and the power of his spirit in us, he teaches us how to live, how to love in this new kingdom. And we are called to do to others what he has done for us. This is why we eat together. So that we can see people for who they really are. Where we can share the good news of the gospel. And where we can disciple and be discipled into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, how you literally lead us to the cross in your word. We're grateful for this passage just before the moment that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, where he shows that inward transformation that comes by grace ultimately and always leads to outward transformation. It leads to change. It leads to a changed affection, a changed knowledge, and a changed love for you and for our neighbor. And so, Father, as we prepare our hearts for all that is coming this week, let us reflect on who you are, on what you have done, and what you are doing currently in our lives, Lord, and what you are calling us to. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand as we sing and prepare to conclude our service with the Lord's Supper.